It's amazing to uh, see all of your beautiful faces. Are you feeling beautiful tonight? Are you feeling beautiful? Odell is. It's good to hear. It's great to see all of you guys. Quick poll of the audience to get us going tonight. Um, how many of you, uh, just by a uh, applause or shout or whistle, whatever, uh, really, really enjoyed your high school days? How many of you guys, just by a little shout out? Yeah. It, it goes like one way or the other, right? Like you either absolutely hated it or it was your obsession. Who could beat the, the high school lunches, though? You know what I'm saying? Uh, corn dog day, you guys remember that? Chocolate milk day? Uh, the, uh, my personal favorite was the hot dog nacho combo, because you could dip the dog in the cheese. That was money. Uh, who, can, who can forget having, uh, getting your first car, right? Uh, for me, it was a 1992 blue Pontiac Sunfire. It was hot. Uh, had racing stripes down the side, white lettered tires. You guys know what I'm saying? You guys, how many of you guys still have white lettered tires? Just, I thought about getting it on my man van, but I just thought it would look inappropriate, so I figured that I probably shouldn't do that. Um, but high school's awesome, you know, the, the sport piece. I love the sport. A lot of you guys, I'm sure, played high school athletics or played in the band. Any band members here? Any high school band members? Nice. Okay, and um, the few and the proud. Played trombone in high school and I loved it. Um, it's interesting. I think for most of us, uh, though, we probably had some pain and some regret and some remorse. Uh, most of our high school days, I'm sure that we would be like, if I, can just, if I could get those back, because they're, they're pretty carefree in the scheme of things, right? You get to college and you realize you have to start doing homework. And um, though you don't have a curfew anymore and you like that, you realize that there's some work in life and you're actually going to have to get a J-O-B, right? Because many of you went your whole high school career without getting a job or working at Ponderosa like me, which really doesn't count, okay? Let's just be honest about it. Um, it's interesting, though, that we've been studying a character in the scriptures that... Um, that has had a little bit different high school experience. No, he didn't go to Jerusalem high, um, but, but he was high school age. He's between uh, 14 and 17 when we meet him. And uh, here's been his rhythm so far, and tell me if this is carefree. Uh, he's, we started out meeting Daniel, and he was kidnapped, which is uh, no one ever wins with that. And um, then he uh, took a stand against the king and um, got tremendous favor with the king, which was great. Uh, and then there was a death sentence on his life, uh, probably at the age of 17 or 18. And uh, then the king has this dream, and with uh, all the gumption in the world and all the faith in the world, he stands before the king and says, I can interpret that dream, though he hadn't yet known it or interpreted it. Um, it's crazy to put this book, Daniel, in perspective a little bit with you remembering your high school days and thinking about this character, Daniel, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, literally standing face to face with one of the most powerful rulers in the entire world in Nebuchadnezzar. And not just talking to Nebuchadnezzar, but looking him in the eye and saying, I will not eat your food. It, it puts the blue Pontiac Sunfire in perspective a little bit, doesn't it? Um, so I want to I get us up to speed quickly. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a crazy dream. It gives him much angst. He's worried about this dream. And he calls all the wise men in Babylon together. And he says, listen, I don't, I'm not going to tell you my dream and then interpret it. That, like, homie, don't play that. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I want you to not only tell me the dream, but interpret it for me. And if you can't do that, I'm killing all of you. Literally all of them. All of the wise men in Babylon. And so the wise men responded like, no human can do this. 
Like there is not one human in this entire world that, that can do this. And then, he, then they add another statement. They're like, only the gods can do this, uh, lowercase plural, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar makes the death sentence, which includes Daniel. He says, all right, everyone dies then. Everyone's dying. Anyone who is a wise man in this country is dying because they could not interpret the dream. And where we left off was this. The dream is yet to be interpreted. Nebuchadnezzar runs to his insecurity. And we saw this brilliant picture of our character Daniel running to his God. And so last week you remember, I left with the encouragement for each of us in our own way to run. To run away from the world and to the only place that gives true comfort, refuge, and strength. And that is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so before we open tonight, I just want to encourage you with this. We're here to preach Jesus tonight. And though we're in the Old Testament and studying an Old Testament character, we, re we really believe here that every story in the Scriptures whispers the name of Jesus. And tonight you will hear that. You'll hear us talk about Jesus, focus on Jesus, and in, in so doing glorify Jesus. Amen? You guys ready to go then? So I want to start us out just to kind of get our hearts prepared by saying this ancient prayer together. It'll be up on your screen. It's called the Lord's Prayer. All right? So let's open tonight in just a, a preparatory way. And um, let's say together here the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Turning your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, my friends. The page number is on your screen. And um, we will get ready to dive right in here. When you're there, say, I'm there. Nice. You're all ready to go. I love it. It's great to see you, seriously. And if you're here for the first time tonight, I want to welcome you, especially those who came to support Judah, a very appropriate name for our context. Here we go. Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his what? To his house, to his adobe, okay? Which is really, really interesting, okay? He has just come and told Ariarch, listen, I want to stand before the king because I'm going to tell the king that I'm going to interpret the dream. And then he goes. The king's like, okay. He goes, and where does it say he goes to? His what? His house, which is really interesting, isn't it? He was kidnapped, a deportee from Israel, and yet he has a home, which shows us how much the Babylons wanted to get the Jews integrated into their culture, so much so that they gave them a casa, you know? They weren't just in a dormitory or some big hotel or something. They literally got their own home. And so Daniel goes there. He goes to his home, and he makes the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I love this. Uh, so you've gotten some, uh, some goods on someone, some drama. You heard about some particular situation, right? And can you put yourself there, like going back and explaining the drama to a group of people that has gathered? Um, so take your situation when you've done that before in the negative sense and completely scratch it because that's not what happens here. He goes back with all prudence, the scripture says, with all composure, and he simply brings these boys into the situation. And what's the situation? Okay, guys, listen. Um, we're all going to die. Or we were all going to die. But... Um, but I've stepped up and I said that I'm going to interpret this dream. Uh, but I, I don't know the dream yet, nor do I know its interpretation. And so they're all like sitting there, these four men, and he's sharing this story. And you can picture like the angst in this room because it's possible that this is the first time that these three have heard of their own death sentence. But listen, 
This next word is so unbelievable to me and so encouraging. These are his what? His companions. It's mind-boggling to me. Listen. We have no scriptural reference that any of the other 50 to 75 Jews stood strong. So in this pagan culture, this pagan world, we have four people who have withstood the testing, who have taken a stand against a king for the glory of God, and the scripture says they're what? They're companions. They're close. They're friends. They're connected. This is such a beautiful picture, isn't it? These four men that have taken a stand against a tyrant, and here they are as friends, as companions. It makes me think so much about our relationships. I think within the church there are two kinds of relationships. There are Christian acquaintances, and what I mean by that is you say you're a Christian, I say I'm a Christian, we really don't know anything about each other's lives, but we can talk all the ridiculous Christian lingo, and so that makes us acquaintances, right? We go to the same church, we sit in the same pew, whatever, we're acquaintances. You say Christian, I say Christian, but there's no depth. That's not what we're seeing here. There's a whole different kind of relationship, and it's called Christian companionship. And Christian companionship is different from Christian acquaintance. Here's how. It's when I am deeply concerned about the holiness and the pursuit of God in my friend. In other words, I desire with all that I am for them to seek God and know God and know him further. That's companionship. Picture then an entire church filled with people that are not just acquaintances, but that are companions, that are deeply concerned about the pursuit of God across the entire room. We're trying to do that here. We're trying to kill gossip so that can happen. We're trying our best to kill judgment so that can happen. Do you understand that it would shift everything if that was your desire? Oh, females, you would wear different things at times. Because you would be concerned about your Christian brothers here in the room, especially. You would be concerned that you would be causing them to lust. And so in your attire, you would wear something different because you desire Christian companionship. You want to push your brother towards the pursuit of Christ. And men, you would not indulge the female identity crisis by giving in to the sense of beauty. You would push your females toward the cross of Christ by reminding them that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You start to understand how much of the church in general is built up of acquaintances. Companionship is we want to pursue God together, all of us, holding each other accountable, tough love, able to look each other in the eye and saying, let's go for it. You get the picture of four men sitting in a house fighting together. You see what I'm saying? I want to encourage us tonight. We are attempting as best we can by the grace of God to have Christian companionship within these walls. And I want to encourage you, if you find yourself as a gossip, it's time to repent and turn. If you find yourself walking in here and being completely okay with acquaintances, I want to encourage you to seek something deeper. We desperately need it, don't we? God has blessed us with the opportunity to have brothers and sisters in Christ who look us in the eye and say, no, 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 you, you see you're compromising. There's more to be had in your relationship with Christ. Don't we need that, church? 
Anyone who denies the concept of the church in America, which I did in my teens, anyone else? You got angry at the church because you saw the church was filled with uh, wretched people, and you're just like, no more of the church. Anyone who renounces the church takes away some of the biggest blessing that we have in each other. We are failed people, but we have the opportunity to be companions. I've realized um, this week that there are so many people that I just burden for in their pursuit of holiness. I hope that when you see me and I see you and we get together, there is just this sense in us. I pray that Mark is not struggling when he's privately alone. I pray for his pursuit of holiness. I pray that he's seeking the word. You see the difference? Do you sense that that you're settling for acquaintances in this body, friends? Or do you feel like you're really deepening, really wanting the pursuit of God in each other now? What happens after that? Check this out. Verse 18. And he told them, his companions, to seek what? Mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Okay, there's two sides of this. There's the funny side, right? Hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to interpret your dream. Boys, we better pray for mercy because I have no idea what this dream is, right? Like, there's that side where we can instantly think, like, it's kind of humorous because he's just going back and saying, like, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know what what we're going to do, but God better do something here. I don't think that's the picture. I think it's a prudent, composed Daniel that tells his boys we need to seek mercy of the God of what? Do you see here? The God of what? Look in your scriptures. The God of what? Heaven. Now, when I study the scriptures, I'm always attuned to interesting phrases. Do you find that interesting? The God of heaven. Any phrase that I think doesn't show up in the scripture a lot, I'm instantly drawn to. God of heaven. Guess how many times? 23. The most is in Ezra eight times. For the exact same reason why Daniel says God of heaven here. Why would he say God of heaven? Why wouldn't he just say God? He said God before. Why God of heaven now? He and his friends are trying to figure out, navigate, how do we communicate about God, uppercase God that we worship in a culture where there are all kinds of lowercase gods. And in this case, Daniel chooses to say the way I'm going to differentiate it The God of heaven, uppercase God of heaven. There's only one God of heaven, and all of your Babylonian gods are on the earth, made up by the earth and the people that live on it. And so my God is in heaven. Do you see what what he's saying? But there's a whole cannonball worth of information in this verse 18. Let's read it one more time. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What does he ask them to do? He asked them to pray. Four men sitting in a house in a pagan culture, in a pagan Babylon, in a pagan city, in a, do you get the picture here? Away from home, four, get this picture please, four men in a house, all of their surroundings completely anti-God, including some of the same Jews who used to profess God from home. And here, you have these four men gathered together, and you get this picture of them, though we don't know it, of these men on their knees. Godly, God-fearing men pleading for what? For mercy. What's mercy? 
Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. So, kind of confusing because what do they deserve? Nebuchadnezzar has swung the gavel. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? You deserve death. Everyone dies. So in this case, they're pleading to God, though they don't deserve it necessarily in God's eyes because of righteousness and who God is is saving grace. But according to Nebuchadnezzar, the gavel has swung, and so they're in deservedness of death. And so they're pleading for mercy. Now, listen, there are going to be certain times throughout this journey where we get a huge glimpse of Daniel's character. Where like all of a sudden God's like, hey, um, by the way, I wrote, this, I wrote this book so that you could see something. Okay, And this is one of those moments where the flashlight shines over the words, and this is a huge moment in understanding Daniel's character. Why has he responded to the king with prudence? Why has his faith seemed unwavering? Why is Daniel seem so strong, so trusting? Why is this happening? It's because Daniel is a man of prayer. I, I think there's two kinds of possibilities here. Most of you, and I've taught on this before, find yourself as panicked prayers, okay? Tragedy, sickness, something comes up. You haven't prayed in a week, but all of a sudden someone gets sick, someone gets strep throat right now, it's really going around, right? The, the flu brivirus, as my daughter said the other night, I'm saying, I was telling her a princess story, and I told her one of the princesses got the flu, and she goes, oh, the flu brivirus, right? So all of this is going around right now. And so some of you just hit the panic button. Oh, now I pray. Someone's sick. Someone's dying. Someone's hurt. Someone's confused. And you just hit the panic button of prayer. And literally, your entire life is built on that panic form of prayer. Anytime that any situation like that comes up, then you pray. Then it seems convenient. And it's as if God would say, oh, really, now? So now you need me. So now there's a desire. There's an opposite uh, kind of the spectrum, and that's someone who lives a life of prayer. Someone who's like a situation comes up like this, and I perceive this as Daniel's situation, where it's like, okay, life sentence, like I'm going to be praying anyway, so now I just have something very specific to pray for. I'm going to be pleading anyway. I'm going to be on my knees anyway, and now, guess what? I just have a huge content piece to pray for. Mercy. Um, I know, listen, I know that most of you desperately struggle with prayer. Okay? And I can't spend a ton amount of time here on this subject but let's just confess it corporately, shall we? You're struggling to find time. You're struggling to know what to say. You're struggling to know how it can look like. Is it formalized? Is it, what does it really look like to live a life where prayer never ceases? What does all that mean? You're struggling with it. I really feel like most of us are struggling because we haven't yet got out of the pattern of just panicked prayer. We haven't begun, listen, we haven't begun just to see what it would be like to seek the Lord every day. Uh, quick story. Many of you guys know who have been around Matthias. Two years ago, I confessed a huge sin in my life to this church. I've been preaching since I was 12, praying publicly all my life, okay? I've been in public settings a lot. And I realized two summers ago that I had gotten extremely numb, that I felt like my prayers I didn't mean, that the words were coming off and they, they didn't have any feeling or belief to them. And God spoke through his scripture for me to pray one thing. And so I took two months, literally two months, and I prayed the same prayer for two months. One prayer. And it was simply, God changed my heart. That's all I prayed. All I prayed for two months. I didn't pray another prayer. Anytime I would think about prayer, that's what I would say. 
sometimes 30, sometimes 20, whatever, 50 times a day. God changed my heart. God changed my heart. God changed my heart. God changed my heart. If I were to give one encouragement, one practical encouragement to you about prayer tonight, as maybe some of you realize you're a panicked prayer, that there isn't this life rhythm of just seeking the Lord at all times, can I encourage you with this? Maybe it just begins with praying that prayer. God, would you change my heart? Help me to see the reality of the, and the truth and the power of interaction with you. Um, listen, I believe that praying the promises has tremendous power. And I believe one of those promises in the scripture is that, is that God is in the business of changing our heart. And when you pray the prayers that, that grab his attention, friends, he must answer because it's promised. You see what I'm saying? So begin to plead that if that's where you're at. So Daniel, look, look, gathers in this room four men on their face pleading for God's mercy. Check this out. Verse 19. Then, oh, then in verse 17, Daniel went to the house. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. They've prayed. They've gathered in this home Daniel lays down, the scripture implies, falling into a deep sleep, and the vision comes to him. Listen, can you imagine this? What have the Babylonian wise men already said? No man can hear and understand this interpretation. They said, only the gods. And do you remember what I said last week? It revealed the Babylonian structure. They believed that man could not have relationship with God. What has just happened? Man, in his relationship with God, pleads to God for mercy, and God answers the prayer, throws down this vision. Could you imagine when Daniel woke up for a moment, right? You wake up from that, and you've just experienced the uh, tremendous encounter of God, having breathed this vision in your heart. What would your only response be? Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Then, then, then. You see? He goes back and he tells the boys. He tells them to pray. The scripture says, then, he, then the vision's revealed to him. Then what does it say? Then he blessed the God of heaven. Listen, if you're a panic prayer, your rhythm is prayer and answer. Prayer, answer. Prayer, answer. Prayer, answer. Even if the answer is yes or the answer is no, that's your rhythm. Prayer, answer. Prayer, answer. Prayer, answer. There's a completely different rhythm for people who li are living lives of prayer. Prayer, answer, worship. That rhythm is found by people who live lives of prayer. No matter how God answers, yes, no, maybe, not now. No matter how God answers, my response will always be worship. And so the life of a prayer warrior seeks mercy from God. God gives it, and his initial response is worship. Most times when a panic prayer hits the panic button and prays and God answers, they immediately turn to action. They forget who's just answered the prayer and they immediately just go on their way to action. God, I'm pleading to, for you to give me wisdom. I remember when my wife and I were, were praying about coming down to St. Charles. This was a huge moment of tension. My wife didn't want to move down to St. Charles at the time. She really loved her O'Fallon home. It was a you know, nice neighborhood, newer house, all these kinds of things. I was literally in 20 houses here in St. Charles before she was in one, right? Trying to learn what submission means, all this kind of stuff. That's another teaching, right? But I'm like wrestling with all this. And I remember finally 
when God answered the prayer and Heidi actually came into a home here in St. Charles. I didn't even care what it was. I was like, we'll take it, right? And she's like, but, like, this isn't, we'll take it. Like, thank you, honey. And I remember, like, going through this process and completely giving God no thanks. So I've been pleading about it for so long. Guess what I had to do? I had to go to this guy who was for sale by owner a week later and say, you know what? Contract, uh, no dicey, you know, which is never a great moment, right? When you have to look someone in the eye after you've signed a contract and I had to break it. I ran from God. Like I just, prayer, answer, and I just completely negated the worship of him. But Daniel doesn't. Prayer, answer, and he blesses God. Now the big question is, what does he say? Pause here. Do you ever feel like, do you ever feel like, all you're saying is other people's praises? Do you ever feel like when you give gratitude to God that all you have to go on is someone else's song? I was burdened with this this week about in times when I desire to give God thanks and all I can come up with is a Chris Tomlin song. Nothing against Chris Tomlin Nothing against Crowder, especially when those songs are based on the Word of God. Nothing wrong with quoting the Word of God, obviously. But I had this profound sense that every time that I, I was giving thanks to God, I was just singing something or praying something or that, that someone else had taught me that I had heard in the Christian rhetoric. It wasn't really personal to me. Do you see what I'm saying? It was like someone else's story of redemption, someone else's blessing, someone else's story. Uh, so listen to this. I was, reading in Psalm, um, I was reading in Psalm 40, and I need you guys to hear this before we read Daniel's prayer. Here's what Psalm 40 says, and the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So the psalmist is saying, he saved me, pulled me out of the pit, made me new. Then what does he say, verse 3? He put a New song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Unbelievable. The psalmist gets to encounter God in this new way, and God gives him a new song that's so pertinent to his situation and making them so connect between him and God. Unbelievable stuff. Now, look at what Daniel says here. Daniel answered, verse 20, and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He, listen, can you picture a man just in a prostrate state of worship? He removes kings and sets up kings. He's sovereign. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. What is he going off of here? He's just shouting that God is good and that he's gracious and that he's sovereign and that he's in control and he has nowhere else to go. Listen. If you're a panic prayer and you get to a moment of response, all that will come out is just cliches that you really don't believe. Do you feel like sometimes in your life all you're talking to people about in the terms of Jesus are just cliches that you really don't believe? God's good all the time, all the time. God's good, God's good right? When I was a youth pastor, I said that a million times. And it was a big like crowd pleaser, right? You, God is good all the time. And everyone's like dressing the dragon, do the hula. You know what I'm saying? It's just this, this stupid cliche. It's true. 
but in our hearts, like we're just saying it and not really believing it, not really rooting ourselves in it. And this is a man who really believes the prayer and the worship that he's saying. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. You see? So incredibly specific to his situation right there and right now. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. This is a man that is completely in love with his God, like I've talked about before, and only his only response is worship. He has no other option at this point. And he's got a big meeting in head. He's got to look in the face of Nebuchadnezzar and share this dream. But all he can do is worship and glorify and praise. Do you think sometimes for you that the numbers of options at the moment of answered prayer is more than prostrate worship? More than just on our face glorifying God in complete abandoned worship? Is he answering prayers in your life? That's a fairly interesting question, isn't it? Is he answering prayers in your life? I was having a conversation with a friend a couple days ago, and I asked him, when was the last time that God answered a prayer of yours? And the response was, I, I can't remember the last time I, I, I asked something in prayer. Daniel has just got to encounter one of the greatest blessings that God has allowed in us, the opportunity to approach him. And this is before Jesus has died and become the high priest, making intercession on our behalf. Unbelievable. This is a man who is not riddled with panicked prayer, but is living a life, a rhythm of worship and prayer and adoration. And so verse 24 says this, Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said uh, this to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. This is a 19 or 20-year-old boy, a man of God, but in, in, in age so young. And with all the confidence in the world now, after God answering his prayer, do you see yourself here? You pray, God answers, and then we still are feeble. God says, yes, I'm calling you to go and do X, Y, Z. It's crystal clear. It couldn't be more clear. And yet we still approach it with feeble and weak knees, not trusting, not believing the empowerment that can come from God. Does this look like any fear at this point? God has answered, and he goes to, Ar to Arioch. Put me before the king. It's time. It's time to interpret. I, I have to tell the king something. All of the, it's, here it is. All resting in on God. And I want to close with this idea and thought. Listen. The scripture said at the end of chapter 1 that Daniel had grew tremendously in knowledge and wisdom. He had been trained in the Chaldean way. He knew sorcery and magic as it pertained to the Babylonian culture. And so he could have rested in his gifts. And do you remember when I told you about the dream manuals? He could have went, went back to his friends and been like, all right, I'm pretty gifted in this stuff. 
Now I'm going to go back to the dream manuals. Remember what I told you about Babylon? They had these huge volumes of dream manuals. We're going to look at this. I'm going to rest and trust in my gifts. And then we're just going to go, we're going to, go to it. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe the king will buy in. He knows that if he trusts in himself, that failure is near. And so he knows the only way to stand confidently before a king is to allow the king of kings to invade his heart. And so that's where he starts. And then with no weak or feeble knees, he stands before Nebuchadnezzar and says, it's time. Ariarch, go get him. I have a dream to interpret. Now, I want to close with this and just want to invite the guys to come up. I want to ask you um, a very specific question tonight. At the end of um, my prayer journey, um, I got to this place where God had said, after two months worth of of God changed my heart, of God changed my heart, of God changed my heart, of God changed my heart. I remember God answering that prayer. And then I remember the first time that I spoke a different prayer to him. And I remember the words because I couldn't forget them because they were words that I had never prayed before. It was like all of a sudden I had this fresh encounter it was like all of a sudden God had put a new song on my heart. And, and I remember the words. And it was, it was, God, I know you now more than I ever have. And then I focused just on the intimacy that we had in the relationship. And, and then the prayer dove into his sovereignty. And I, and I started to talk about, God, I know in your sovereign plan that you have allowed me to go through this dry season. That in this time that we could know each other more intimately. And so I just kept praying, and I realized, like, God had put a new song in my mouth. And all of a sudden, my prayer life completely changed. And I remember praising and worshiping, not with my daddy's prayer or just some prayer that I learned in Sunday school, but all of a sudden, like, the God of the universe had put a new song of praise for himself on my mouth, and it felt so genuine. It felt so authentic. I felt so many days of my life, all I'm doing is just expressing what someone else has said instead of finally being able to be like, God, here's what you have done in me specifically. And I come to you with tremendous gratitude. And so I ask you this now. What is the last prayer that he has answered in your life? Yes, no, maybe, not yet. What is the last prayer? Now, some of you have never prayed before. And maybe tonight your prayer for the first time is just, God, begin to change my heart. God, begin to shift who I am. Maybe that's you tonight. But for the rest of us, when was the last time that God answered a prayer? Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to sit in this room together, and I'm going to pray that God puts a new song on your mouth a new way to give thanks. As you reflect on that answered prayer, as you reflect on his goodness, I'm gonna pray even here and now in this room that God does something in you that all of a sudden you realize that he has answered. Though you went away in quick action that yes, he spoke. And so church,
I just want you to sit in this room now and we're going to pray that God puts a new song, a new song of thanksgiving on your heart. Maybe that will cause you to stand. Maybe that will cause you to speak out. Maybe that will cause you just to sit silently. Whatever that means for you, does he answer prayers or not? Let's just sit in the presence of God tonight.